Good morning, church. Um, so if anyone's new to our church, you've been hearing this phrase, Route 66, a lot. We are in this initiative uh, where we're reading through the whole Bible in one year, give or take, 66 books in 66 weeks. And we're doing it not only to discipline ourselves to be in God's Word, but hopefully also to stir up in our, our hearts a passion, a passion for the Lord. Because we believe the Bible is one big story, right? It culminates in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's on every page that it's hinted at. But if you're, if you're in Route 66 with us, maybe a feeling you've had, I know it's a feeling I've had a couple times, is, whoa, can we slow down? This is a lot. This is so fast. Um, it's such a pace that we're going at. But I, I want to encourage us this morning because... There's a way of reading God's Word where you digest it and you meditate on it and you take your time with it and you go slow. And, and that's kind of like maybe hiking a path in the mountains, right? You have time to look at every tree, every stone, and take it in and enjoy the beauty of it. But Route 66 is kind of like getting in a helicopter and flying over those mountains. It's all going by so quickly, but it's an incredible vantage point. It's an amazing perspective that you get when you go at that speed and from that height. Um, so neither perspective is better, but it would be a shame if we never experienced both styles of, of reading and of enjoying God and his word that way. So if you are tracking with us right now, we're in the middle of our kingdom series. And just as a quick recap, Israel makes it to the promised land they start driving out some of their enemies, and it doesn't take long before they ask God to make them a king so they can be just like all the nations around them, right? They thought a king was the answer to their problems. It was going to be their source of, of courage and protection and authority. So we watched as God gave them Saul, who was a king who attempted to do things in his own power, right? And Saul succumbed to pride and vanity, and he ends up losing his right to the throne. And, and last week we heard Jason preach about David, the, the shepherd boy, who God raised up to be king because he had a heart after God's own heart. But this morning we're going to look at the division of the kingdom of Israel. So not only two generations later after King David, the whole kingdom of Israel is going to get split in half, by David's grandson. So today's message, I'm going to break it up into three, three sections for us. Um, we're going to look really, really briefly at the historical reason for Israel to divide. Um, but then we're going to spend more time discussing what was the spiritual reality, like why did God cause that to happen? And then finally, we'll ask, what does it mean for us personally? Um, so let me pray, and then we can dive into God's word. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is alive, it's living and active, and it's sharp. Lord, so I just pray that you would have it speak to us this morning, that it would cut to our hearts, God, that you would enter into our spirit, into our hearts, into the very essence of our being with your word and plant it there. Convict us where we need conviction, Lord, and and draw us closer to yourself, Lord. Give us a new heart, a heart that loves you and seeks to follow you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 
if we had to put our finger on one moment in time that was the, the cause of Israel to divide, and maybe you didn't even know Israel divides, but spoiler alert, Israel gets split in half, okay? It would be in 1 Kings chapter 12, and you're actually going to read that chapter in Route 66 this week, so I'm just going to do a, a real quick flyover. Um, we have a map, actually, I'm going to pull up. It's, a, it's the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And there's nothing like trying to keep track of a story with main characters whose names rhyme, right? So I'll try and keep it straight for us, but Rehoboam is the king over Israel, and he is David's grandson, okay? And Jeroboam is a servant of the king. And what happens is Jeroboam gathers the servants that class of people, and they appear before King Rehoboam, and they say, hey, can you lighten up on us, please? It's a little too much, all that you're asking from us. And King Rehoboam, he decides to, to consider their proposal, and he asks for a few days, and he goes and he, he seeks counsel. He goes first to the wise elders of Israel, and he says, what do you think I should do? And the elders tell him, you should listen to them, because if you lighten up their loads, they'll receive you as king, and they'll, they'll be your servants forever. Rehoboam doesn't really jive with that response, so he goes to his peers, the young men that he grew up with in the palace, and he says, okay, what do you guys think I should do? And they basically advise him to say something along the lines of, oh, you think you're my dad's? limitations were rough, and he was harsh, well, you got another thing coming with me. And he basically, uh, well, which, which response do you think he, he chooses? He chooses to listen to his peers, right? And he goes out and he tells Jeroboam and the servants, he says, basically, I'm going to lay down the hammer on you, which is just such a foolish move. And, and you'll see the foolishness and the folly of it this week as you read, but Jeroboam then leads a rebellion. He's like, fine, if you're going to act that way, I'm going to rebel. And, and all the people rally around Jeroboam, and they make him their king. So in a moment, God separates the nation of Israel into two halves, a northern kingdom, which is ruled by this rags-to-riches story of the servant-made king, uh, Jeroboam. And then that's 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the south is Judah, <laughs> a southern kingdom, which continues to be ruled by King Rehoboam, and he gets only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And Israel's going to live in this split status for, for the rest of their time until the exile. And as you read the scripture from here on out, it, this delineation appears constantly. The word is going to speak of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. <clears throat> but that might have been the the mechanism for how the kingdom splits, but it's not really the true reason why God makes it happen. It's clear that, that Rehoboam screws up and he makes a pretty prideful, foolish decision in that moment. But there's actually a much deeper reason for it happening. See, Rehoboam's decision was sort of like lighting the match that started the fire. But the kindling had already been piled up and doused with kerosene, and that was due to Israel's previous king. That's King Solomon. So to learn the real spiritual reason for Israel's divide, we need to look at the choices of King Solomon. So if you would, let's open our Bibles up to 1 Kings chapter 11. 
And while you turn there, I'm just going to give a brief background on Solomon. So when David was old and sort of past his prime and lacking the strength to rule effectively, uh, his son, Adonijah, decides to prop himself up as king. He starts gathering the support of the people. And David's wife, Bathsheba, yes, the Bathsheba he committed adultery with, uh, she goes to King David and says, hey, can you set up my son, Solomon, as the king? And so in, in one of his dying actions, David listens to Bathsheba and, and, and gives his crown, effectively, to Solomon. And Solomon, he kind of starts off well. Early on in his kingship, he has this unique moment where the Lord appears to him and says, you can ask for one thing, anything, and I will give it to you. And in a real moment of character and humility, Solomon asks for wisdom. And God is really, really pleased by that. It, it reveals Solomon's heart. And so God, in addition to giving him wisdom, he gives him wealth, prosperity, power. And so Solomon ends up with all these resources at his disposal. He ends up building the temple, this opulent, I mean, the whole temple it's described, it's everything pretty much is covered in gold. That's how rich Solomon was, to have all that gold at his disposal. <clears throat> he writes books of wisdom like Ecclesiastes, which we heard read this morning. And based on all these things, his wealth, his wisdom, his judicious rulings, his lavish kingdom, Solomon essentially becomes the most sought-after man on the face of the earth at that time. So what could possibly go wrong, right? Well, let's look at the first few verses of chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So what do we make of this? Uh, some historical context. Marriage back then was often used as a peace treaty between nations, right? It's likely that a bunch of surrounding leaders saw the prominence of Solomon in Israel and they willingly brought their daughters to him in marriage and said, hey, if, if we give you our daughter, you promise not to invade or make war on us or increase our taxes. But, but that's not an excuse for Solomon. This was not a gray area for Israel. The Lord makes it incredibly clear in the law that the Israelites were not supposed to marry from the surrounding nations or the nations they would drive out of the promised land. In fact, the writer here, he's directly quoting Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he says, the Lord said to the people of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. But Solomon doesn't just commit 
the sin of taking a foreigner as a wife, I mean, that probably would still make his heart susceptible to being pulled away from God. But he commits the additional sin of amassing over a thousand wives. And that also was forbidden by God in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says, You shall not acquire many wives for yourself, lest your heart turn away. Nor shall you acquire excessive gold and silver. Okay, guilty on both accounts, Solomon. Um, I mean, think, think about this. One, imagine one foreign wife who's leading your heart to worship these false gods, these false idols. But then multiply that force by a thousand. There's just no possible way Solomon could withstand being led astray. One other thing, if you caught it, the very first line, it says that he married the daughter of Pharaoh. So not only does he intermarry from the nations in the promised land and around it immediately, but he goes back to Egypt and he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. How symbolic is that? That the king of Israel, who's supposed to be living in freedom with the law, goes back to the very thing that enslaved him. But we do that all the time, don't we? We have this magnetic attraction to sin, right? It's still in us. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, But right now, I want us to look back at the text and hear the Lord's response to Solomon. So if we pick up in verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." Now skip down to verse 29. Recognize this name. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Okay, let's stop there. So here the Lord... He's blunt with Solomon. He says, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands. And God reiterates that to Jeroboam, the servant who would become king, right? And he gives this great visual aid 
Ahijah, the, the prophet, he's wearing a garment, and Ahijah rips it into 12 pieces, and he says, this is the way God's going to tear up Israel. He's going to rip it into 12 pieces, and you're going to get 10, and Solomon's line is only going to get one. And I think this is really interesting because the idea of tearing something or being torn has multiple meanings, right? It can mean having something forcefully taken from you, like when you see kids playing on the playground and one kid tears a toy away from another, right? But it also can mean to be in a state of division. I mean, when, I, when you tear a piece of paper, you literally divide that paper into multiple pieces. And so this declaration from the Lord to Solomon, it's true on multiple levels. The kingdom is going to get torn or ripped out of his hands, or his son's hands, rather. But it's also going to be torn and divided into multiple pieces and fragments. But in another sense, we use the word torn to express when we're divided internally, right? When we're torn over a decision or two competing interests, And isn't that exactly what's happening with Solomon right here? The kingdom of Israel is going to be torn because the heart of its king is torn. Torn between two loves. The love of his foreign wives and their gods and the love of the one true God, Yahweh. And God's decision to split the kingdom, it comes straight from his displeasure in Solomon's divided heart. Remember, the word said that God was angry because Solomon had turned away from the Lord and toward other gods. Now, Jesus warns us against this very thing, and we'll put this verse up from Matthew chapter 6. The Lord says that no one can serve two masters, Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And we've heard this repeated a lot during Route 66, so I'm just going to reiterate it. But there is no middle ground for a Christian. There are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. There is no possible way that you and I can turn towards the things of the world with desire and with affection, and simultaneously seek to love the Lord first and foremost. They are contradictory. The disciple John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, the greatest commandment It doesn't charge us to love the Lord with some or most of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It tells us, it demands of us, love the Lord with all that you are. Solomon's own father, King David, he prayed this for his son. He prayed it over his son in 1 Chronicles. Give my son Solomon an undivided heart to keep and to carry out all your commands, your decrees, and your statutes. That word, undivided there, it's the Hebrew word shalom, which we know of as peace, right? 
But it's, it's deeper than that. It's richer than that. It's peace deriving from wholeness. It's peace coming from having a single ambition, a single aim, one affection. Being purely fixed on God. Having a heart that is after Him. That's the way to real peace. That is real shalom. Is when your heart is not divided, not torn. It's set after one thing. Now, it's easy for us to sit back and point the finger at Solomon. Man, what a screw up. He started off so well. But Solomon's just a representation of the whole nation of Israel. And he's just a representation of you and me. So I think the question we need to ask is, how did this happen to Solomon? Because he makes some good decisions off the bat. He, he asks for wisdom and humility rather than money or power. He builds the temple for God's presence to dwell in. So how did the wisest man who ever lived end up turning away from the Lord and forsaking him? Because if it happened to him, it can happen to us. And to answer that question, I want to fast forward and take you to June 3rd, 2017, okay? Uh, Around 5.30 in the morning, before the sun even came up over Yosemite National Park, a 31-year-old named Alex Honnold set out on a rock climbing route called Free Rider, which we'll put a map of. It's in... Uh, the cliff face of El Capitan, it's nearly 3,000 vertical feet. That's over 500 feet taller than the Empire State Building stacked on top of the Chrysler Building. And he reaches the summit in just three hours and 56 minutes. It's incredible. But the catch is, he free climbed it. He did it without any ropes. The first ever to climb that route with no ropes. There's a picture of. So uh, I'll let you get that pit out of your stomach. (laughs) If you're curious, National Geographic made an incredible documentary. Uh, It's called Free Solo. Um, But I want to say the trick to free climbing, to being a good free climber, I guess to being a not dead free climber, besides a dose of questionable sanity, is, uh, is impeccable grip strength. So what does that have to do with Solomon? Well, if you look back at verse 2 in chapter 11, all the way at the end of verse 2, it says this little phrase, Solomon clung to these in love. Solomon chose to put the grip of his heart around foreign wives and their gods. And that word clung is the same Hebrew word for cleave, which we read in Genesis. The husband should cleave, hold fast to his wife. So maybe you're thinking, Andrew, wait, Solomon's not doing anything wrong. The Bible says a husband's supposed to cleave to his wife. Yes, the Bible does say that, but not in an ultimate sense, not in the extreme sense. Not in the sense of placing all your value, your hope, your joy, your stability, your purpose in that one person. 
Our hearts were only ever made to cling and hold fast to God. But toward the end of his life, Solomon rearranged all of his priorities, gets them all mixed up, and he puts his wives and their gods at the top of his list. And God repeatedly warns against this, and he tells us in Scripture time and time again to hold fast to him above everything else. Just up until this point in 1 Kings, that phrase, that command to cling, to hold fast, has been used seven times. This is just one example, Deuteronomy 13. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. It sounds a lot like David's prayer for, for Solomon, doesn't it? Obey all of his commands. Hold fast to him. See, David knew that that was the real reason for living. But why? Why is God so adamant about us clinging to him? I think it's because it's a lot harder to be torn away and turned away from the Lord when you have a good grip on him. So I want us to think about this. Um, when is your grip strength the weakest? You know when you first wake up in the morning, you're still groggy and tired, and you try, even holding your toothbrush is like a challenge. Your fingers are still waking up. Or if you're outside in the cold, and, and there's not a lot of circulation going to your t- fingertips, and even like an easy, simple task becomes almost impossible. Well, I think a coldness or a tired apathy before God, that's a surefire way to lose your grip on him. If you watch that documentary about Alex Honnold, it is abundantly clear that he loves rock climbing more than anything else in the world. It's his identity. It's his everything. It, his relationships pale in comparison to his love for rock climbing. It's a little bit sad to see it, actually, but it's, it's the same. The same needs to be true for us. God needs to outshine and outdo everything else in our hearts because the hotter our passion burns for the Lord, the stronger our grip on him gets. And during, during the documentary, there are these moments where the film crew, they, they actually stop rolling. They can't even bear to watch because if he slips at this point, pivotal moment on the climb, it's over, right? One mistake and he's done for. But that adrenaline rush, it comes from knowing the consequences are extreme, right? So do we take the time to realize the consequences of forsaking and forgetting God and turning away from him? For Solomon, he just lost an earthly kingdom, but for us, for the Christian, do we know what's at stake when we turn away from the Lord? When we pursue the things of this world, in the moment it never seems like a lot. It's just this one small thing. What could happen? What could go wrong? But we risk death when we turn from the Lord. We risk dying, not just physically, but spiritually. Because the wages of sin is death. Every time you and I willfully turn away from God and pursue something else, we're numbing ourselves to him. We're numbing ourselves to his presence and to his love. 
and to spiritual death. We have to keep that eternal perspective in front of us day by day to keep our priorities in the right order. What really matters? What is of ultimate meaning to us as Christians? Now, no matter how skilled a rock climber is, they could never scale a glass cliff face, right? Something smooth, perfectly smooth. There's no way. Because they, they need something to hold on to. And the mountain itself is what a rock climber holds on to. There are these ledges and cracks, and sometimes they just wedge a few fingertips in them. And they choose to dangle their whole body weight And our faith in God functions the same way. You and I are never going to fully comprehend God. He is an infinite God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But God gives us enough to hold on to. He reveals enough of himself to demand and deserve our confident trust our adoration, our love, our commitment to him. Namely, he shows us his love by giving us the life of his own son. And it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that's the most important thing that we're given to strengthen our faith. It has to be that finger hold that we keep coming back to that demands we hang all our weight on it. Because it's the culmination of everything this book talks about. And it's hinted at it every page. Even in the chapter we just read, it was there. Even though God was angry with Solomon, he remembers his promise to his people. He says he's going to preserve one tribe, the tribe of Judah, for the sake of his servant David. And even though Judah is led by flawed kings, and even though it's small and smaller than its northern counterpart, it's going to be the tribe that God derives the Messiah from, the Savior, Jesus. I wanted to put up a passage from Ezekiel. This is written 300 years after the split of Israel. And Ezekiel is prophesying about the one who would come to reunite and restore the nation. He says... This is God speaking. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, 
and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is Jesus he's talking about. Jesus is this one king, this one true shepherd of his people. Only he can cleanse us from our sin, from backsliding. Only he can enable us to follow him purely and obey him. Only he gives us that everlasting shalom, that peace with God. And only he welcomes us into God's presence forever. Jesus is the only one who can do this because he was the only one with an undivided heart. Unlike us and Solomon, Jesus' heart was only set on one thing, doing the Father's will. He said his food was to do the will of God. But because of his unyielding devotion to the Father, it meant that he himself would be torn. Torn away from the presence of God through his death. And even there in the face of that suffering, he says to God, not my will be done, but your will. I am undividedly devoted to you, God. Jesus is the better David who not only prayed that his children would have shalom, but he shed his blood to purchase our shalom, our peace. And the way to gaining that undivided heart like the heart of Jesus is by clinging to God. And the motivation for clinging to God comes through drawing near to Jesus by being fixated on him. You know, when Jesus is on the cross, the soldiers, they're stripping him naked and they're dividing up his clothes and they try and cast lots for his, his undergarment, the shirt or the tunic that's closest to his heart. And they can't split it because there's not even a seam in it. It's like the things that touch the heart of Jesus themselves get undivided and indivisible. Are we getting ourselves that close to Jesus? Do you live right up against his heart where his life bleeds into your life? Where he shapes and determines how you live and why you live? See, the mountain, it, it offers a, a hole for the climber to grab onto. And Jesus is our rock, is he not? He gives us the holes here and here and in his feet to hold on to, to wedge ourselves in. Praise you, Jesus. Maybe you haven't realized that your grip on God has been weakening. Maybe you haven't been able to detect it, that it's getting loose, but I want us to check our hearts this morning because the Lord wants to be our first love. So what's in the way 
What are these lesser things that we're clinging to? How can you tell what you're clinging to? You build high places of worship for those things. It says Solomon built temples for all the gods of his foreign wives. That's a lot of temples. But we build places of worship for the things in our life that we love the most. We build them into our routines. We build them into our reflexes, into the apps on our home screen. Those are the things that we prioritize. They're the things that we find our sense of meaning and purpose in, right? So what are you clinging to with love and affection that's not the Lord? And when the Lord reveals those things to you, which I really believe that he does when we seek him with our heart and ask him to, then we need to repent for clinging to those things. In the Jewish culture, they would, as a sign of repentance or lamentation, they would tear their garments, right? Sackcloth and ashes or We see time and time again of of a moment in the scriptures where someone in a state of upset, you know, uh, sorrow rips their, their garments. But the prophet Joel says this to us. He says, tear your hearts, not your garments. We need to have our hearts broken, our hearts torn by the ways in which we spurn God. If that doesn't break your heart, when God, when God in his goodness reveals to you the ways that you've walked away from him and turned to other things, if that doesn't rip your heart open, then we just need more and more mercy, more grace. Lord, give us repentant hearts. Help us turn back to you. Lord, help us to cling to you, Jesus, with all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our heart, Lord. Be our everything, God. See, it's on every page of this book, the story. Israel, it gets divided because it forgets and forsakes its first love. And Jesus warns us of that. When he speaks to the church in Revelation, he says, do not forsake your first love. Don't do it. The temptation's there. Don't forsake me. Cling to Jesus. Cling to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you are the author and the perfecter of our faith, Lord. Thank you that it's not, it's not in our own power to have to hold on to you perfectly, Lord. You give grace upon grace, Lord, but you do demand a choice of us daily. We have in front of us either to 
to choose to cling to the things of this world which are fading away. Or we can cling to you, God. We can cling to your heart where we find true peace with you, Lord. Where we find forgiveness and where we find the joy of your presence. Lord, so light that fire in us, that first love fire, God. To be holy, undivided. We pray it just like David prayed. We pray it for ourselves. We pray it for our children. We pray it for those we love, Lord, that you would give in us a heart that is undivided, wholly yours to keep and obey and follow you closely, God. We thank you, Jesus, that you did what we couldn't do. That you had the perfect heart, Lord. But you promised to give us your very spirit to cleanse us and renew us. Lord, so make us more like yourself, God. With one aim, one ambition, just to seek your will, your kingdom. And your will be done, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.